This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Hi, it's Vanessa from the Fighting Stigma Show on Free FM. Are you a Waikato local? Do you have an idea for a radio show? Do you want to try your hand at being a content creator on Free FM? If so, check out our website on freefm.org.nz or find Free FM on Facebook and get in touch.
majestic throne to this kingdom where all must pay homage to music. Music. I have needed you with me to serve me, to sing for my music, my Places, please. It's time to head backstage. My name is Mel Martin, and once again, I'm back in the studio with my good friend Mike. What a month it has been, Mike. You must be feeling so much the same way. I am. I am. I am. Am I ever? If you are joining us for the first time, by the way, we're based in Hamilton, New Zealand. We talk about plays. We talk about musicals, going right up and down the country, but most particularly in our patch. And yep. our patch is pretty broad. Yep. And if you're joining us for the third time, you will experience us today in our usual state, which is, as Mel said, both of us in the studio. Last week, I had the thrill of doing a solo show, which had its ups and downs. <laughs> <laughs> There's a nice way of putting it. I, again, it's my turn to apologise. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I had the flu cold thing that's been going around the Waikato and obviously last week I've been absolutely slammed with production week for Heathers so Mike took one for the team um, there for me last week and gave us everything we need to know about the industrial musical and Avenue Q as well yeah, it so went very well yeah, we I'm discovered so industrial musicals because I knew that you hadn't come across that genre before no and I, I found it really absorbing and I have to say April Phillips putting me onto that documentary was what triggered it and then cool. I thought this is so awful it's got to be good <laughs> and was it? which is kind of like uh, it was the tone of the documentary actually oh yeah the fact that they put so much money and so much effort and so much time into creating these very lavish productions. Yeah, right. It would have taken weeks, even in a professional environment, to uh, rehearse. Yeah. Like, mm. I'm talking huge song and dance numbers. There is footage showing these things, you know, full dancing girls, the whole bit, and huge sets uh, for what was probably only one or two performances in most mm. cases. Interesting. And the corporations that fired the money into making that happen at a time when Broadway was staging musicals for less than a million bucks, they were pouring millions into these things mm. for their conventions, which is pretty amazing. But Just my, for the fun of it. Yeah, you know, this is for a captive audience of you know five, 6,000 people who worked for the company at the time. Mm. And I guess at the time it made sense to do all that, but I'm digressing a bit anyway because I'm going over stuff we covered last week. But... Yeah, but it became absorbing to me the more I looked into it. Yeah. And I have an appreciation for the artistry and the commitment and particularly the songwriting and all that sort of stuff that went into making those things happen. Cool. And what do you think of Avenue Q? Avenue Q, I have never seen a live production. Yeah. And um, I have fallen in love with it. Yeah, yeah big fan, eh? Yeah. I can imagine that it is an opportunity for, particularly um, in this country, for people to learn amazing puppetry skills yeah that's uh, right. and we don't have a, a huge history of that sort of stuff in this country so yeah um yeah I, I hope when things are fully back to normal and we start seeing you know the influx of stuff from overseas again that there may be a touring production that comes back here sometime before i die i'm sure i'm almost definitely sure that we'll, we'll see another show before you before i shuffle before you leave this planet <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anywho this week our musical of the week is uh, another one that well, frankly, 
<laughs> we're really surprised <laughs> we haven't done it yet. The Phantom of the Opera, because, uh, you know, why haven't we done this yet? I have no idea. We must have been purposely staying away from it. I was originally today going to go with Love Never Dies, which is the sequel for yeah. Phantom of the Opera. And then I looked back at our list and went, oh, shit, we've actually never done Phantom. So should probably do Phantom before I do its sequel, which is why we're doing that today. Fair and, enough. And I'll, I'll go with that. Yeah, happy? I'll take that. Happy with that. Yeah. Uh, and in other news, we have got a little friend who's not that little, a friend in the studio with us, John O'Free Ben's here. Yeah. Hello, everyone. Most I think that's the quietest I've ever been for a length <laughs> I of you starting of time. To, I could hear you starting to breathe, and I was like, yeah. oh, God, we've got to introduce John O'Free I really breathing. wanted to He's start breathing. talking about Avenue Q because it's one of my favourite musicals just mm-hmm. because of the way that it is. But puppetry. Or, yeah, not just the puppetry. But, uh, oh, sure, just I the focused humor on that, it. but, yeah, the whole thing uh, is treatment of, you know, adult life in that form. Mm-hmm. Brilliant. Clever yeah, way to concept. do a show. They did a version of it at Hamilton Operatic did yes, that I'm show a few yeah. years ago a, a now. A little bit before I arrived here. Such mm. a good version. They did such a great job of it. It was good fun. I, I really enjoyed that. Um, I did see another... A te- so, I mean, you've seen... You know what Avenue Q is about, and I, we saw this one in Hamilton a couple of years ago and they did it really mm. well I saw another version in another town I won't tell you what town uh, but <laughs> there was an Asian character not played by an Asian person and there was a black character not played by a black person and Ooh. it was very uh, I, I couldn't I couldn't vibe with it I yeah. wasn't and it's not even just that she's play, uh, a white woman playing the Asian character it's that this Asian character takes the piss out of the Asian culture so it needs it needs to be an Asian person because she puts on this ah saka 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 I'm doing sit- shitty a Japanese accent you know it's really really racist and it yeah. can only be done by an Asian person right. if you if at all and that's, and yeah that's how the content has to be handled for that show it does have to be especially it's very when as you said Mike how it, it is that sort of commentary on life mm. at that age and yeah I definitely think it has to be cast right mm. which creates problems if you're in a, a community where actors of that ethnicity just aren't available what do you do exactly if it's a show you desperately want to do probably just um, don't do that show go further afield think. maybe you have to show it until you can or try harder to find the right performance that's yep. a good point that's yeah. probably a really good point yeah, yeah. I like that yeah. We have Jono here to talk with us today about, uh, we, well, working with me on duets, obviously, because that's the highlight in his life at the moment. <laughs> it's his whole reason for getting out of bed in the morning. It is, absolutely. <laughs> but also working with the Meteor on Beards, 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 which is a fascinating show. I've read the script, and it is a hoot. Uh, and whatever else takes our fancy, since he's a captive audience, we will <laughs> we just <laughs> yeah, grill him on He likes anything. to talk. So, John, I really appreciate you coming in and helping us fill a few of the gaps we might otherwise have had for this week's episode. Absolutely. I love being here. I listen to every episode. Love this little show. It's great. I listen to every episode. There's only one other person I can think of that would say that. Uh, and I think you might <laughs> Is be. Is it the, you? I think you might be the first returning guest that's been here more than once. I'll take oh, possibly. it. Possibly. Yeah. Take that. Congratulations. Wait, it might be a three person show shortly. <laughs> He's getting himself in there as <laughs> oh, co host, he reckons. That's, that's what it's always like, is that you get someone in here and they try to muscle in. No. All right, We're you, performers. That's what we do. How's your show going, Jono? Which one? Uh, let's, go with, let's talk about duets first. Uh, it's great. Shall I leave the room? No, no. <laughs> yeah, if you could. <laughs> it's recording. <laughs> yeah, it's a good little show. Quite enjoy working with Mike. And well, I worked with Mike last year on Take a Chance on Me for Morrinsville Theatre. Had a lot of fun doing that, playing 20-odd-plus characters. Um, but this year, duets is a bit different. Only 18 
less characters to play. <laughs> he's, he's doing two characters. But we're all doing two characters. How are you going with accepting Mike into your cast? Has he learned his lines yet? Yeah, he yeah. has, actually. Mm. I think I'm struggling <laughs> the most at the I'm moment. trying to lead by example, Mel. Oh, good. Which is like uncharacteristic that. for me. I'm really delighted that with the cast that we have, actually. Mm, and a nice uh, no, just no disrespect to, um, to Steve McMurray, who was originally cast on the roles that I was ended up with. Mm. Um, and it wouldn't have been fair on Steve for him to continue with the number of other things that he had going on mm. in his life. Mm. And uh, I think he made the right choice to back out. I would have been happy for that to continue, but stepping into the cast has meant that I've put a lot of trust in Tracy Barlow. Uh, to be my eyes and ears and to give me that objective viewpoint on, on stuff that I can't see when I'm on stage. Uh, but it's been really cool working with uh, John Owen, also with uh, Joe Bishop. And, oh, I love uh, Joe, she's amazing. Yeah, Julia Watkins is the fourth member of the team. And, also um, amazing. You know, I think we've we've managed to mesh together pretty well as a, as a foursome, even though uh, John Owen and Joe don't have anything to do with Julia and I. Like, we have our own separate stories, so we don't. there's no cross-pollination. Mm. Mm, sure. But it is important, I think, for all four of the actors involved to understand and embrace the um, the vision for the whole thing Yeah. in order to make yeah. their two stories work. Yeah. Exactly. And we've got a, an amazing set that's almost happened by accident. I've seen a couple of your photos. They yeah. look pretty cool. It's come a, together. It throws a lot of focus on the performers and the and the storylines that evolve on stage and doesn't distract with a whole lot of unnecessary stuff. And I think it's um, a way of presenting Gaslight Theatre in a way that hasn't been perhaps explored too much before either. Cool. Trying to make a, a sort of black box space out of it. Let's get uh, my tickets, actually. Getting really excited about the fact that we're actually opening this weekend, and we've got a preview night uh, on Thursday for a captive audience. Yeah. We had our second dress rehearsal last night. That went um, particularly well, so um, the, the plan is that this evening we will have the night off, perform tomorrow night. Uh, Friday we've got a chance, if we need to, to titivate anything we want then, but Saturday we're all on for two solid weeks, and that's going to be tough going. Yeah, It is going to be tough going, but it, you're, that's where you have the fun, right? Yeah. I think it's time for an audience for us now too. Yeah. Like Couldn't we've heard totally the jokes agree. all yeah. the time and there is one scene that I do with Joe where we've slowly started to add technical elements where the laughs will come and last night I wet myself in the middle of rehearsal because I'd never seen it before and we were just sort of imagining what was going to happen and then it happened and I, I corpsed a little bit. Um, but I think once the audience see those moments... It's just going to bring that new energy into the show that it's lacking at the moment. Which, you know, anybody who's performed knows what that's like. That's production week for years, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Get the warm bodies in the auditorium and suddenly things change a little bit. And and you feed back off that too. But, you know, Duets is an interesting collection of stories and they uh, explore relationships on lots of different levels. And there's a lot of very relatable stuff in those stories that I think people will recognise. Cool. And get a lot out of, yeah. It's been an interesting journey, and, and I'm really, really, yeah. really pleased I've done it. Cool. Um, you know, the next project is going to come along soon enough, but for now, we're just really relishing what we're doing. But then yes. you've got Beards, Beards, Beards. Yeah. I'm on the heels of that, because you're on stage with that next month. All right, first of all, tell us what is Beards, Beards, Beards. It's a show that was written by a man named Ralph McCubbin Howell, who is one of the founders of Trick of the Light Theatre Company, who... You may have heard of or seen yep. their shows at the Meteor. They've travelled a few through here. They did one recently called Troll. Um, is the most recent one that's been to Hamilton. 
And how I came about directing Beards, Beards, Beards was having been involved with the kids' shows over the past four or five years at The Meteor with Benny Marama writing most of those and then last year Courtney Mail took the reins and Debs and the team at The Meteor, Benny and co, said, well, maybe it's time you stepped up having been involved in every show. And I was like, okay... <laughs> and so here I am directing. I've wanted to direct for a while. I have wanted to direct for a long time, actually, and I have picked a show that I really want to direct, and it wasn't this one. Um, <laughs> and I wasn't sure that I was ever going to direct a musical because it's not something that's one of my strengths. I don't think. Is Beards 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 a musical? Yeah. Oh, okay, cool. <laughs> and it's a great musical. It's very cleverly written. The I don't know if you'd call them costumes or props. The beards themselves are amazing. Are they the original Trick of the Light ones? Um, we have a collection of the originals, and we are getting Sylvie and her team at Art Makers just down the road in Seton Park to make some of the ones that we weren't supplied with, which cool. is great. So really helping to create that community cooperation and stuff to put a show together love that well i've read the script so i know what's what it's about but give us the thumbnail on the storyline okay so essentially it's set in a barber shop two fathers and their daughter are the only people in the show in terms of physical human bodies her two fathers yes um so her name is beatrix and the characters names are dad and other dad awesome and she essentially wants to grow the world's greatest beard and has been told all her life that she can't because she's female. She cuts her hair in the middle of the night, thunder, lightning, which in turn summons the patron saint of bearded women, <laughs> Wigil Fortis, who is played by one of the fathers. They essentially play every character in the show except Beatrix. Sure. And in a nutshell, what happens is she travels through the mirror in the barbershop to this wonderland where she travels through history and time meeting different famous bearded men kind of very wizard of aussie story and then at the end of the show no spoilers there's a very kind of wholesome conclusion to the whole storyline and it's really cool and what i love about it the most is the whimsy that there is with the beards and the rabbit hole kind of effect of the barbershop mirror and then having done it myself challenging two very talented actors Benny Martima and Jermaine Clover who I didn't know before working on the show with him to play I don't know they must have at least 16 characters each alongside Hannah Doherty's Beatrix which is amazing they're doing an incredible job she's the best I'm like you when I read that story and I just thought well this is so cool it's it's got all the best parts of things like Alice Through the Looking Glass Mm. Wizard of Oz which you've already mentioned that whole whimsy thing and the you know the outrageous kind of fantasy that's involved but the um the very truthful kind of moral that comes out of yeah. all of that as well I think exactly. is, is terrific and I'm going to go ahead I, like, I have not read the script and have not seen the show before but I'm going to go ahead and say based on what you've told us there's some sort of gender commentary there which yeah. I quite like the sound of as uh, a just, queer person and expectations of people as well as you know, and yeah. what your limitations might be in life what a know? cool story to tell for children yeah it's yeah. awesome it's a really wicked little play musical 
so combo gonna, of the two. That's going to be on as a, as a children's production in July for the school holidays, right? Yeah, it goes on on the 19th of July, and we do 12 shows in five days. Yeah. Ooh. And by we, I mean them, because <laughs> I get the year off this year. But it's all coming together really nicely, which is great. You know, we're sort of at that stage of production where we've got everything blocked now, and it's just a matter of ironing out all of the kinks and throwing costumes and props at it. How are you enjoying the uh, director's role and, and having that overview? Uh, it's very different, um, but, and you two can probably attest to this, being a perfectionist, you just want everything to be perfect. And I think the hardest thing I'm finding is every rehearsal, when you're watching it and watching it and watching it, it's a real struggle to not re-block every time because there's something that I see that I'll do differently next time. Yeah. And I think you've just got to make that decision to be like, it's at a spot where it's okay, it's good enough. Yeah, it's a tough call to make uh, when you see something and you think, is it worth reworking that? Often there are very sound reasons why you do need to re-block something. Mm. You know, something's just not working. But if you if your first instinct was to go a certain way with uh, with a, a piece of action on stage or some interaction, often that is really what you need to stick to. Yeah. And I'm not telling you how to suck eggs or anything, but this is my my discovery through the directing process is that uh, often your first instincts are the best. Yeah. And you just need to find a way to make that work. Sometimes that's a minor tweak. It might just be having somebody face the other way or do something in a different, slightly different yeah. way that suddenly changes the the balance on stage and it works yeah and something i find as well is that you know when you do your blocking first up uh you're just creating the shapes you know yeah. you're not fine-tuning everything yet you're just creating what like the basic shape of everything and often you find that those sorts of things do iron themselves out and when they don't you know sometimes you just make That's compromises yeah. yeah yeah exactly and that, um, compromise is the other word i was going to bring up there too because uh, directing is all about finding out what compromises are acceptable on all levels mm. and whether it's a compromise that you need to make to accommodate something that the cast has brought to the action or vice versa um that they need to compromise over something they might have been burning to do but doesn't fit the mm. whole direction of the whole show yeah and i think i've attacked it mostly from a performing point of view because I know that when I'm on stage, I like to be given a little bit of freedom to put my spin on what I think should happen as well. And I think then it's up to the director, if they don't like it, to tell you, oh, this is how I want it done. But working with Benner and Hanna, Hannah, Hannah, Benny, Benner, Benny, Benner and, and Hannah, who are very experienced performers, well, I've worked with both of them countless times now, to have them help me in a way if I think I'm stuck a little bit I'll, oh, how would you do this if you mm. were in my shoes or how how does it feel to perform that and you get that little bit of feedback and their input I think is important as well because if it feels unnatural to perform it translates yeah. to, from an audience point of view I think and that's not what I want even though the show is very bizarre it still has to be as natural as possible because at the end of the day the characters live in that world mm. so it can't feel weird or unnatural for them to perform it good point they need to be able to sell it mm. yeah exactly it's got to be believable you've got to suspend the disbelief of the audience long enough for them to buy in and then you add the whole level of it being children's theater mm. who there are two types of honest people in the world children and drunk people <laughs> so 
they'll tell you and having performed in the kids shows they'll boo if they don't like it they'll cheer if they love it and you want that experience for them as well you don't want to just spoon feed all the kids because they're children yeah you've got to respect their intelligence too. exactly yeah, yeah. and you want them to formulate their own opinions and mm. thoughts based on their experience and exactly that with the whole moral undertone of the way that the show's written they have to get that takeaway the way they would interpret it yeah well i fully intend to be one of the more elderly children in the audience at some point during the show's run we are doing two night shows this year cool which is awesome which i think is the wednesday and thursday night i might be wrong go on the menials website and just double check that (laughs) we'll cheer we'll cheer we'll boo excellent we'll do all the stuff that you need But great to hear about that first directing experience because I think it's an important one, the first show that you do, mm. because that kind of sets your expectations from there on. It teaches you an awful lot. My gosh, I you know, remember the first show you ever directed and, and you think, well, I went into that not knowing so much, but came out of it with so many other experiences. Uh, yeah. it, either, it either makes you vow never to do it again or <laughs> <laughs> it gets in your blood a bit. Yeah, I think it's something that'll stick with me. You know how you get the bug for performing? Yeah. You get a bug for directing too, I think. You do a bit, don't you? Yeah. All right, before I let these two continue talking, let's have some more Phantom. Are you afraid of? Let's not. Let's not. 
Stage with Mel, Mike, and Jono this week, and it's time for our musical of the week. Now, obviously, that was Masquerade from Phantom, terrific track. Mm. And Mel, probably best if we just do this cold turkey. You just hit us with it, babe. You ready? I mean, yeah. I, I don't think there's too many people out there who don't know Phantom, so I'm just going to give it to you all in one big dose. Bear with me. In 1984, Andrew Lloyd Webber contacted the producer Cameron McIntosh, the co-producer of Cats and Song and Dance, to propose a new musical. He was aiming for a romantic piece and suggested Gaston LaRue's book The Phantom of the Opera as a basis. They screened both the 1925 Lon Chaney and the 1943 Claude Rains motion picture versions, but neither Andrew Lloyd Webber or Cameron McIntosh saw any effective way to make the leap from film to stage. Later in New York, Andrew Lloyd Webber found a second-hand copy of the original, long-out-of-print LaRue novel, which supplied the necessary inspiration to develop the musical. Oh. Very exciting. Um, <laughs> inspired in part by an earlier musical version of the same story by Ken Hill, Lloyd Webber's score is sometimes operatic in style, but maintains the form and structure of a musical throughout. The full-fledged operatic passages are reserved principally for the secondary characters such as Andre and Furman, the theatre owners, 
and Carlotta, she's the performer in their, in their operas. They are also used to provide the content of the fictional operas that are taking place within the show itself. Hannibal, Il Muto and The Phantom's masterwork, Don Juan Triumphant, uh, which is what they're staging um, when everything goes wrong. The Phantom of the Opera opens on the stage of the Opera de Paris, 1905. Old stage props are being auctioned. The elderly Raoul, Vicomte de Chagny, is the major buyer and he seems pretty emotionally affected by his purchases. A broken chandelier is produced. The auctioneer recalls its connection with the mysterious tale of the Phantom of the Opera nearly 50 years earlier. The music begins as the working portion of the chandelier is lit. Like magic, the lit portion starts to grow to full size and finally it rises to its former position in the auditorium as the stage of the opera reverts in flashback to the grandeur of the year 1861, which is when we meet Carlotta. She is rehearsing the opera Hannibal. As she sings her aria, the backdrop crashes down, the chorus insists that this is the work of the Phantom, and a frightened Carlotta refuses to perform that evening. Meg, who is in the opera's ballet company, suggests that her fellow dancer, Christine Daae, should take over. As Christine sings for the new managers, Andre and Furman, the scene changes to that evening's performance where she enjoys a great success. The opera's distinguished patron, Raoul, as a young man, recognises Christine as his childhood acquaintance. Hey, I grew up with you. Yeah. Remember? Think yeah. think of me when you're thinking of the summers that we used to have. Yeah. <laughs> um, in her dressing room afterwards, Christine confides to Meg that she has a mysterious teacher whom she has never seen, if that's not creepy enough on its own. Um, she associates this disembodied voice with her dying father's promise to send an angel of music to watch over her when he died. Raoul de Chagny asks Christine to supper. As he leaves, the phantom, angry at Raoul's familiarity with his protege, commands Christine to look in the mirror. She sees him, takes his hand through the mirror and disappears with him into the mirror. The creature, Phantom, leads Christine deep into the caverns and waterways beneath the opera house and across a subterranean lake lit by candelabra, all that fire under there. When they reach his secret lair, he plays a huge organ and sings of his shadowy, sensual world of music. The next morning, Christine wakes to the sound of the Phantom composing at the organ. She snatches his mask and reveals his horribly disfigured face. Uh, And although he is enraged, he is reluctant to return her to the theatre and only does so after realising that her absence will cause a search. We're nearly at the end of Act 1. Cool. <laughs> Act <laughs> 1. <laughs> Messages are then delivered from the Phantom. Raoul is forbidden to see Christine, and another decree orders that Christine be given the leading role in the next opera, Il Muto, while Carlotta is to take a non-singing role. Carlotta, obviously, is furious. To keep her with the company, Andre and Furman flatter her outrageously and privately assure her that she will, after all, play the star part. So they have reckoned without the Phantom. In the first performance of Il Muto, he ridicules Carlotta by making her croak like a toad. So there's some uh, spray that she is given for her voice. Oh, okay. I thought it might be a magic spell or something. No, it's a spray. One of the company members comes on with a spray for her throat, which has been happening throughout the show. Okay. And, he, and the Phantom has obviously switched the bottles and I she see. can't right. sing. Then a stagehand is found murdered, hanging from uh, the rafters. Christine takes Raoul up on to the roof of the theatre where they will be safe from the Phantom. She tells him everything, uh, the the secret music teacher, the angel of music from her dad, just tells Raoul everything. He comforts her and confesses his love, which she returns, and the Phantom witnesses their kiss. Christine completes the opera in Carlotta's place as she takes her curtain call. The great chandelier crashes to the stage. 
Intermission. That's intermission. the, that's the dun, end of that one. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah, and it's all very dun, dun. Uh, exciting. Act 2 opens on New Year's Eve. Everyone is gathered at the opera for a masked ball. It's now six months since the chandelier incident, and Raoul and Christine have secretly become engaged. At the height of the festivities, the Phantom appears on the grand staircase, dressed in red and wearing a death's head mask. He presents the score of a new opera, Don Juan Triumphant, and commands that the opera stage it. In the notes to his opera, the Phantom orders that Christine not only take the prima donna role, but that she should return to him for more tuition. Confused and afraid, Christine seeks comfort at her father's grave, but even there she is haunted by her angel of music. As he calls her to him, the, the, the figures of her father and the phantom seem to merge in her mind. Raoul appears and breaks the mesmeric influence by carrying Christine to safety. <laughs> During the premiere of the opera, the phantom murders the leading man and takes his place opposite Christine. He sings passionately of his love, and at the climax of his song, Christine tears out his mask to expose his hideous deformity to the audience. Screaming, he grabs her, and they disappear, pursued by the theatre staff. And now we're gearing towards the end of the show. Um, he must be found, track down this murderer. These are numbers in the show. Raoul, the first to reach the phantom's lair, ends up being trapped, and a rope is draped over his neck. The monster, Phantom, offers Christine a choice, succumb to him or see her loved one die. Christine, feeling both terror and pity, approaches the Phantom and kisses him. The kiss has a magical effect and the Phantom releases Raoul and urges them both to cross the lake. As they leave, he whispers, Christine, I love you. And the Phantom covers himself with his cloak as the mob breaks in. And the final scene is Meg comes down to find um, she's the next person on the scene. She snatches his cloak away and the Phantom is gone and only his mask remains. It's actually very magical. Very um, melodramatic, awesome isn't it? to see live. It yeah. is, yeah, very magical. I've just seen a production of it in um, Fakatani and it was just, you know, a community theatre production. But that cape hanging there that he's been wearing there the whole time and he stands there and you don't really see anything happen and then she pulls the cape down and he's gone and it's all just very magic I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it I'm delighted to hear all this because uh, although I'm familiar with the music, not all of it but most of it, I have never ever seen a production oh my God. and I wasn't oh, able to get the Fakatani. Oh yeah, well I mean it'll be around again, it's yeah, sure. definitely not the last it's one of those ones around. that doesn't go away yeah well, no, and as well, let me tell you how much it doesn't go away. <laughs> Please uh, do. <laughs> a, pre a preview of the first act of Phantom was staged at Sidmonton, which is Andrew Lloyd Webber's home, in 1985. I wasn't born yet. Uh, that starred mm -hmm. Colm Wilkinson, who originated the role of Jean Valjean in Les Mis. Yep. And he was later the star of the Toronto production. He was Phantom. Sarah Brightman played. Surprise, surprise. Sarah Brightman. Sarah Brightman. Uh, played in the original production Kristen, later Christine and Clive Carter played Raoul. This very preliminary production used Richard Stilgo's original unaltered lyrics prior to Andrew Lloyd Webber coming along and many songs sported names that were later changed such as What Has Time Done To Me became Think Of Me and a song called Papers became Notes. The Phantom's original mask covered the entire face, apparently, and remained in place throughout the performance, fully obscuring the actor's vision and muffling his voice. Um, Maria Bjornsson designed the now-iconic half-mask to replace that, and the unmasking sequence was added. Clips of that preview performance were included on the DVD of the 2004 film production uh, with Gerard Butler. Phantom began previews at Her Majesty's Theatre in London's West End on the 27th of September in 1986, so a year later, under the direction of Hal Prince. 
It then opened on the 9th of October. Michael Crawford starred in the title role again with Sarah Brightman as Christine and Steve Barton as Raoul. The production, which played at Her Majesty's Theatre, celebrated its 10,000th performance on the 23rd of October 2010 with Andrew Lloyd Webber and the original Phantom Crawford in attendance. At the time of its closure in 2020, and it closed because of COVID, it was the second longest running musical in West End and world history behind Les Mis and third overall behind The Mousetrap. Wow. Isn't that interesting? A 25th anniversary stage performance was held in London on the 1st and 2nd of October in 2011 at the Royal Albert Hall and was screened live in cinemas worldwide. That cast included Ramin Karamlu as The Phantom and Sierra Bogus as Christine, and that's the version we're listening to today because I love it. In March of 2012, a new production directed by Lawrence Connor began a UK and Ireland tour to commemorate the 25th anniversary of the show. That began at the Theatre Royal Plymouth and travelled through to Manchester, Bristol, Dublin, Leeds, Edinburgh, Milton Keynes, Cardiff and Southampton. Over in America... Phantom began Broadway previews at the Majestic Theatre in 1988 in January, and that opened on the 26th. Andrew Lloyd Webber had hoped to open in Toronto prior to Broadway, but apparently political pressure forced that change. Michael Crawford and Sarah Brightman reprised their respective roles from the West End, and that production continues to play at the Majestic, where it became the first Broadway musical in history to surpass 10,000 performances on the 11th of February 2012. In January 2013, the production celebrated its 25th anniversary with its 10,400th performance. It is, by over 3,500 performances, the longest-running show in Broadway history. The 30th anniversary was had in 2018 with special activities and an extra performance during the week. And by April 2019, Phantom had been staged over 13,000 times. Amazing record, isn't it? Isn't that it? Well, I mean, and so it that's, just keeps on giving. It, it's literally never going anywhere. And it, it will be back. Also one of the key roles that uh, really made Rob Guest's career. Mm. You know, that's that right. And Jean Valjean, two roles that he's most famously known for. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, and that's all I've got for you. I mean, I could have more because there's an abundance, but... Y- I think you've shown great restraint to bring us what you have. <laughs> yeah, I just nailed it down to the need to know. Yeah, well, great though. Great. Yeah. It's a wicked show. You hear the title song, Phantom of the Opera, played live. And it's iconic. It will give you chills. Mm, it is iconic. Live is completely different to listening to the recording. Those performance stats are incredible though because I had no idea it was that far ahead of anything else in terms of its longevity on on both Broadway and West End stage. Yeah. Mm. Right up there with Lake Miss. Amazing record. Yeah. Yeah. Well done Mel. Thanks. Get in and watch the 25th anniversary performance Mike. You'll enjoy it. It's a really good production. Imagination Silently the censors Abandon their defense Sense it, tremble, sentence. 
turn your face away from the garish light of day. Turn your thoughts away from cold and feeling And listen to the music of the night. Close your eyes and surrender to your darkest dreams. Purge your thoughts of the life you knew before. Close your eyes, let your spirit start.
The music of the night from Musical of the Week, The Phantom of the Opera. You're back. Had to play it, didn't we? We did. <laughs> you could not. Uh, you're backstage with Mel and Mike and Jono, uh, and it is now time to get out your calendars and start noting things down because here is what's coming up around the place soonish. I'll kick off. The Meteor has Heather's The Musical. Yes. Mm-hmm. Presented by Black Box Creative. It's only on till Saturday, though, so uh, if you're able to get a ticket, I don't know, yeah. you probably can't. You no, probably can't be. Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. not sure. <laughs> But that's a great thing. If you can bribe the right person. Yeah, <laughs> depends who you know. Shot Bro is coming up, though. Rob Mokaraka is on from the 22nd of June. Sorry if I mispronounced it, but your surname there, Rob. At Clarence Street, Hamilton Operatic Society are in rehearsals for Chicago. They're opening on June the 25th. At Rivley Theatre, Move Over Mrs. Markham, directed by Sean Dwyer from June the 12th to the 26th. At Navarra Lounge, there is a whole bunch of stuff happening there. You can check out their Facebook page. Taroha Little Theatre, they were uh, just about ready to launch with Waiting for Godot, but uh, due to illness in the cast, that has been postponed. We don't have a new date for that yet, but we'll let you know as soon as we know. Over at the Gaslight Theatre in Cambridge, as you know, Jono and Mike are in rehearsals for duets. They opened this weekend on the 12th of June. Let's go to Tauranga. Tauranga Musical Theatre in rehearsals for Les Miserables on stage in September. I've seen some of their candid shots from rehearsals. They look like they're really getting into blocking and everything already. Which I'll is be really trying cool. to get over for it. Still in Tauranga, 16th Avenue Theatre uh, in rehearsals for Neighbourhood Watch by Alan Aikborn, going to stage in July. And Detour Theatre has uh, How to Train Your Husband ready to launch this month. I think they were already just about sold out for the season June, two. I think, yeah. Not a big theatre, though, so if you're a Detour Theatre fan, you've got to get in quick to get, get in there sense. quick. Yeah. Normally at this stage we would uh, talk about upcoming auditions and opportunities, but uh, a bit thin on the ground at the moment. We're probably missing something, but... Yeah, I'm yeah, sure we are. That's how it is. <laughs> yeah. John, I've been really cool to have you in the studio once again to um, share your experience as a, as a newbie director but also, um, you know, to just catch up on what you're doing. And what have you got after Beards, Beards, Beards? Is there anything on the line Not at this stage. There are a few things coming up that I've heard about that I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about. Fair enough. Um, and I've got a few other projects, hopefully, that I'd like to get my hands sort of sunken into. And then next year, who knows what might happen. I kind of have a clean diary calendar at the moment so if you're, if you're searching for a male actor Jono's free there's, there's a few little pencil marks dotted across it but <laughs> nothing solidified yet so oh, well, you may need to come back and talk to us again sometime in the next few months to uh, fill us in on your um, on your calendar as Give it evolves absolutely but really good to have you in as I said as a guest once again and um, you know best of luck with beards 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 thank you we'll come and there. see it yeah, we'll be there. We'll definitely be there. As always, get in touch if you want to add something to our list of what's on or our list of opportunities with auditions and so on. The email address is backstagepodcastnz at gmail.com or you can just send us a message.
one way or another. Or tag us on Facebook. Tag us in the comments of your event. Yeah. We'll get it listed. Just a reminder to get in touch with our friends at Creative Waikato if you or your arts project could use their assistance. And don't forget to catch Backstage wherever you get your podcasts. Backstage is available on accessmedia.nz, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. And by the way, head on over to Instagram and find Backstage Podcast NZ where Mel will be sharing today's episode plus links for our Musical of the Week audio on our story. I've been Mike, she's been Mel, he's been Jono, and you've been Backstage. Today we are going out with this little ditty from Phantom of the Opera. It's Think of Me from our Musical of the Week. Stay classy, theatre nerds. See you. Bye. Think of me. Think of me fondly when we've said goodbye. Remember me every so often. Promise me you'll try. Andre, this is doing nothing for my nerves. Don't fret, Fiona. Remember that day, that not so distant day, when you were far away and free. If you ever find a moment, spare not for Madame, Monsieur!
Yes, you did well. He will be pleased. And you, you were a disgrace. Such rond de Jean, such ton de crease. Come, we rehearse now. For more episodes, use the accessmedia.nz app for iOS and Android devices or subscribe to this podcast via Spotify, iHeartRadio or Apple Podcasts. This free FM podcast was brought to you with support from New Zealand On Air.